Now for agribusiness news, markets, and weather. From Studio C, this is Agriculture Today. Climate Smart Agriculture Commodity Initiative, uh, helping smaller size producers get a value-added proposition. Having farmers qualify for ecosystem service markets, and when they do the right conservation and there's a conservation benefit and a greenhouse gas reduction or carbon being sequestered, they're getting paid for it. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack. Uh, the use of the Renewable Energy for America program to reduce the cost of electricity and maybe even producing excess electricity, which could be combined with their neighbors to provide a transition for the rural electric cooperative, creating a new energy commodity. Expanded access to processing, local processing. Uh, over 400 projects invested by USDA in the last three years. Uh, focusing on local and regional food purchasing agreement and, and contracts with local producers, small producers, to be able to provide those fruits and vegetables for schools and for the uh, food banks, uh, using our uh, procurement dollars uh, as well for that purpose. This is Agriculture Today. In the U.S. economy, the single sector that contributes the most greenhouse gases is transportation. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. And that's true in many, if not most, other economies as well. And it's certainly true uh, globally that transportation plays a major role. So uh, we've aligned with our Department of Energy on a roadmap for decarbonizing transportation, a blueprint to get us toward that goal of net zero in 2050. And it's inevitably the case that every transportation policy decision is also a decision about climate policy, whether we recognize it or not. So we had better recognize it. And that's what we're doing. Uh, Some things that are probably better publicized than others. Obviously, our efforts around electric vehicles are an example of that. Uh, we're working hard to make sure that electric vehicles are affordable and that you can charge them when you need to uh, so that we can decarbonize surface transportation in the U.S. But I would also say, no matter how good we are at going electric, uh, something that's been there all along that is a huge part of our climate solution is good old-fashioned transit. Although I put an asterisk on old-fashioned because we're funding zero-emission buses to be part of the transit systems. But no matter, uh, even if you're in an all-electric ride, everybody who finds that it's a better choice for them to take transit uh, brings with them a huge reduction in uh, carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions. Part of this goes down to the very design of our communities, which is uh, the the relationship between land use and transportation. Can we design uh, the footprint of our communities to not require people to take as many trips as they do? Uh, How many people were on 66 or 95? Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It it really matters, right? Mm -hmm. Just the the logic of our our built environment. And these are all very rich uh, discussions for uh, for international engagement. So is Corsia, uh, where the U.S. has has played a leading role, and our department has been very active uh, in helping to align around standards for aviation emissions reduction which uh, importantly includes uh, commitments around the use of sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, and we're also funding a SAF grand challenge to try to stimulate that. This is a manifestly international challenge because, of course, we need to come to alignment on what counts as sustainable for sustainable aviation fuel purposes. And it's much more fungible if we have a book and claim system than if everybody's got to have their own mm-hmm. captive uh, system for, uh, uh, for uh, getting that sustainable aviation fuel into their aircraft. Um, so all, all of these things require engagement in many multilateral fora, whether it's ICAO, the International Civil uh, uh, Aviation Organization, uh, whether it's the COP talks where our department was present at Abu Dhabi, as you mentioned, and I was at the Glasgow talks, um, or in the G7, where this, along with supply chains, has been very high on the list of topics that uh, we took up in, in Japan at our ministerial last year. Uh, we, we're, we're all in this together. It's the same air. It's mm-hmm. the same climate. And the consequences. So not only is transportation contributing a great deal of greenhouse gas emissions, but transportation is often the first to feel the impact when there's a problem. I mentioned I was just in the Pacific Northwest about a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. They experienced heat waves that should not even statistically be possible. And they had such impact that the transit agency had to shut down because their cables were in danger of melting. We've seen uh, runways buckle 
because they were not built to the specifications that would expect them to withstand the kind of, uh, uh, of climate impacts they've seen. And I, as in many things, approach this as a former mayor because we experienced what I was told was a thousand-year flood when I was mayor. I heard the rain coming uh, mm-hmm. overnight. An hour later, heard the rain still coming, and then two hours later was activating our emergency operations center to deal with that thousand-year flood. Our next thousand-year flood came about a year and a half later. And so we need to get out of the business of telling communities and cities to put back a road exactly the way it was when it got washed out by a thousand-year flood that is about to become an annual event. And that's part of what we're trying to update in terms of the resilient strategies that we have. Mm -hmm. And we're putting our money where our mouth is, Mm -hmm. funding more resilient infrastructure that can withstand these climate impacts. Because no matter, even if we pass the tests in front of us with flying colors, which the reality, of course, is much more complex than that on mitigating and preventing, we already have to be adaptive. It's Agriculture Today. This is Agriculture Today. From a big picture standpoint, all we're looking at here is a beef on dairy cross. Kevin Good is with Cattle Facts at the recent Cattle Facts Annual Outlook Seminar in Orlando. From a macro standpoint, their margins, if we think about the dairy industry, milk versus feed, the first half of last year they were negative. They harvested a lot of dairy cows. The second half of the year, they are profitable. And for the total year, about a 40,000 head decline in the dairy cow herd. This year, we're anticipating a little bit of expansion. Milk values have came up. Feed costs have gone down. This is just to illustrate that the importance of the beef on dairy cross as we go forward is going to become more and more important to our feedlot side. Because as you think about it, over the next two to three years, because of a more, more adaption rate on beef on dairy cross in the dairy industry, combined with beef heifer retention at some point in the future, a higher and higher percentage of our feedlot population will end up being beef on dairy cross. And on competing meats? I think it's interesting to note that you think about poultry in particular. Last year, huge supply, cheap price, and they couldn't export any more overseas. Kind of tells you that the globe, global poultry market might be basically maxed out, so to speak. So those are some things as we think about our competition in here, and we're going to look at per capita supplies in a minute, that are somewhat of a headwind as we look at it. So with that in mind, rolling all through three proteins together, you can see from the trough back in 14, we're tw- still 20 pounds per capita above, 10%. So even though our supplies are getting substantially tighter, when we look at our competition, you can see that poultry actually has continued to increase record large year over year. You'll wonder why we can't see a price increase on on chicken. And then pork, you can see that it's gone back to that long-term average of about 50 pounds per capita. Contrast that to where it was the last time all three proteins we're at record high prices as we went up the ladder in 14. Obviously, we all went up the ladder with COVID. We went up first in 20. We're talking about retail prices and wholesale prices. Pork went up in 21. Chicken went up in 22. We stayed up. They've came down. As you can see in the box, if you want to look at it last year, both of those proteins were cheaper year over year at wholesale. Retail, they didn't see much inflation. And because of that, you had a retailer out there as we switch and start talking about demand that featured them a lot more than us. There was more margin there. It's very noticeable, particularly in the fourth quarter, when the beef complex just felt heavy. 
and didn't perform as we went through the latter part of last year. So you can see this is a cycle story. This, went ha- this happened before when we had our low back there from a featuring standpoint in 14. So you do have to expect that to continue over the next couple years as you think about the relationship here between our prices and their prices. Now, don't get me wrong here. You can still see that we're featured the lion's share. The retailer still sees value in beef featuring, particularly for beef holidays. Holidays at the end of the year, also the grilling holidays as you go through the spring and summer. That's not going to change. But it's that every other week ad, instead of getting a, a chuck roast or a round, you're going to get a chicken breast, you're going to get pork chop. And that's what we've seen as we've gone over the last few months. It's Agriculture Today. You're listening to Agriculture Today. One of the uh, main missions of the U.S. Grains Council is to develop those foreign markets in, in, in places of the world, and that's sometimes places that people aren't familiar with, like Senegal. Brent Boydston is the chairman of the U.S. Grains Council from their annual membership meeting in Guatemala. So Senegal is in West Africa. It's actually the furthest west country in West Africa. But the nice thing about it, it's a very stable country, uh, very long-term stability. Uh, it's economically stable. It's politically stable in a kind of unstable part of the, the world. But as it is increasing in, in, a, in its economic prowess, it's also developing into a very good market. And when you look at that West African market, so uh, when you when you hear West Africa, it's Senegal, it's Ghana, uh, Sierra Leone, Benin, uh, Nigeria. That is a population that is growing rapidly. It is accumulating wealth rapidly, and they do want to tradition into those higher value meat protein products that are being grown with U.S. corn and sorghum. So for those who might not know where Senegal is, probably know where Japan is. Why a recent trip there? So we had our joint officers mission with uh, National Corn Growers. Uh, They're a a very important strategic partner with Grains Council. And every other year we do a joint officer mission. But uh, uh, like Senegal, we went over, we evaluated the programs uh, that we were working on, what is working, what, uh, what needs to be worked on. Uh, but it was a very good trip. We saw that uh, Japan is looking at moving to a higher standard of ethanol blends. Uh, there was a lot of talk on sustainable aviation fuel and what that can mean uh, for the ethanol industry and what it will also mean for the auto industry. Uh, there seems to be uh, the opinion that uh, uh, Japan's going to import ethanol in general and they'll blend it with the gasoline there because they're not going to import their blended gasoline with what they're using now and ethanol separately. So very, very exciting to see the, the market potential for U.S. ethanol into Japan. Many leaders for the U.S. Grains Council are direct farmers, but Boydston comes from the industry. So the, the, the nice thing about the Grains Council is it brings it brings all spectrums of the value chain together. You have the biotech members, you have the, the agribusiness members, you have ethanol producers, you have farmers, and you also have the, the, the trading companies on the back end. So it's all about that combined voice on talking about the positive technology that farmers are using to increase that sustainability, increase that yield, and, and doing things better so that we can satisfy our, our, our global customers. And once again, the council holding their annual meeting and international marketing conference in Guatemala City, Guatemala. 
For those not there, what are the takeaways? I think the key takeaways are uh, just the importance of Guatemala to agricultural trade. It is a top 10 market for corn. Uh, as you're seeing the, the pork and poultry plat, uh, uh, production increase in Guatemala, that's going to create uh, the ability to bring in uh, those DDGs to increase the, uh, the protein and the feed. Uh, so we're seeing that in a very positive light. Regionally, uh, Guatemala is the largest country, both geographically and population in the Latin America region, so it's, it's a lot. It's a large driver. They're wanting to incorporate more ethanol into their into their motor gasoline, and that's going to cause a ripple effect through the region. And says farmer support does not get lost. Uh, we can't do what we do without uh, that farmer support, uh, both from our memberships and through their, their organizations that are members into the Grains Council. So thank you for your support and trusting us with what we do. It's Agriculture Today. With Agriculture Today, here's Tony St. James. Dealing with supply chains, climate change, health, or safety. Uh, All of these are manifestly interconnected and so often require international expertise and cooperation to confront them. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. I will, though, start by offering a little bit about the domestic context in terms of that bipartisan infrastructure law that we are now fast at work implementing. If you think of the administration's tenure here as a sort of a a, a four-year arc in this term, year one was really focused on getting that legislation passed. And then it took much of the next year to establish the programs that would make it possible to deploy the $1.2 trillion made possible by that law, about half of which is for transportation. Which means that the years to follow, years three and four, the season that we're in right now, is the dynamic season we've all been waiting for, uh, where the projects began to take shape. If year one was about the bill passing, and year two was about the programs launching, years three and four are about the money moving and then the dirt flying. And that is very much happening around us. Uh, But what I really want to convey is the range of activity that's going on, because the same programs known as Mega and Infra that are contributing to that grant are also helping us add truck parking in uh, sites around the country, Tennessee, Wyoming, uh, that are probably not regarded as among the iconic structures of U.S. transportation, but critically important to our supply chains because uh, truck drivers are not finding enough places to park, which presents uh, an issue that that touches safety as well as the fluidity of our goods movement. So whether we're talking about multi-billion dollar projects like the Hudson River Tunnel that represents one of the largest public works infrastructure projects in the United States in our time, or whether we're talking about a six-figure grant that's going to transform a streetscape in a town that has been plagued with too many traffic deaths. All of it adds up into this season of infrastructure where we have 40,000 projects and counting, making transportation better. And we're putting hundreds of thousands of people to work in the process, which is, of course, one of the reasons why we were so energetic about this legislation in the first place. It's why it's called the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, with emphasis on the jobs. But as I said, all of this is connected to the work that we're doing around the world and and what we can learn from our partners around the world. Supply chains is a term that I think was not a household term three or four years ago. Now uh, it very much is kitchen table talk, especially after the congestion blockage and disruptions that we saw in 2021 as a consequence of COVID. Uh, and international cooperation is very important there. We've worked with uh, ASEAN to find ways to move cargo shipping more smoothly. And we're working with a range of countries to keep mariners safe and keep supply chains running in light of what is taking place right now with threats in the Red Sea. 
Meanwhile, on the aviation side, we've been working with the International Civil uh, Aviation Organization and the aviation industry directly to standardize public health measures during COVID, to strengthen security measures in response to Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, to reduce global emissions through the use of sustainable aviation fuels, and and so many more efforts uh, that can only be done in cooperation with our partners. Uh, Which brings me to the third point I want to mention, which is the many areas in which, in all humility, we recognize that the United States can learn a great deal and improve a great deal through international engagement and partnership. And I'll mention two areas in particular. One, project delivery. If we can figure out a way to be 1% more efficient on a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, that represents $10 billion of value that will have been unlocked. Or to put it in the negative, every 1% that is uh, spent less efficiently than it could be because of things taking too long or costing too much is $10 billion worth of value that we won't get unless we get this right. It's Agriculture Today. This is Agriculture Today. Next, we can look at the costs or the, that farmers incur in order to produce their agricultural output. These are things like feed, seed, and labor. Speaking last week at USDA's annual Ag Outlook Forum, Carrie Litkowski is the lead for farm income at USDA's Economic Research Service. In 2022, we saw a significant increase in production expenses, 15% or about $56 billion nominally. In 2023, we, we expect that, forca- that expenses stabilized in total, meaning that they increased nominally, but when adjusted for inflation, they decreased. So it's pretty stable. In 2024, we're forecasting that they will increase 3.8% uh, nominally or 1.6% inflation adjusted. We can also look at spending by category. And for most categories of spending, we are expecting to see higher costs relative to 2023. But this chart compares spending across three years, 2022, 2023, and 2024. And if this chart is in nominal dollars. So livestock and poultry purchases, they are expected to see the do- largest dollar and percentage increase in 2024, largely due to higher prices for like cattle, you know, like to replace their cattle or, or, or as similar to that. Also, labor expenses are forecast to increase following recent trends in uh, wage rates. Spending on fertilizer, feed, and pesticides, we are forecasting that they will increase in 2024. However, we think they will remain below the levels that we saw in 2022 in nominal dollars. A couple items just below the dotted line indicate which expenses we think will decrease in 2024, and that includes spending on fuel and oils due to expectations for lower gas prices and net rent. So as we get to the bottom line, no pun intended, what do we see on the balance sheet? Despite expecting two years of lower income, we are for, the balance sheet remains relatively strong. Equity, that's the green area, area, is forecast to continue to grow into 2024, largely reflecting increases in real estate assets. That's the value of land and buildings. Debt, that's the blue area. 
We saw the first decline in debt since 2012, since in 2022, but since then debt has continued to grow and we expect it to continue to grow into 2024, largely reflecting increases in real estate debt. There are a number of things we can look at when trying to gauge the financial stress within the industry. And I'm just going to give you two examples here, looking at the bankruptcy rate and the debt to service ratio. First, the bankruptcy rate, they fell significantly in 2021. And they're expected to be less than one bankruptcy per 10,000 farms in 2000. Well, not expected. These are based on data from the U.S. courts. There was less than one bankruptcy per 10,000 farms in 2023 and 2022. So quite low. The debt service ratio, that's the blue line, and it indicates the amount of production income that has to go towards servicing debt or making debt payments or interest expenses. This had been trending down, but we are forecasting that it will increase in 2023 and 2024, largely due to the declines that we've been seeing in cash receipts, as well as higher interest expenses in recent years. And this is Agriculture Today. You're listening to Agriculture Today. I've always been really passionate about the U.S. agriculture sector. Reese Kennedy is Regional Director for South Asia for the U.S. Grains Council. You know, you look at a, at a market like China 20 years ago or 30 years ago maybe, that's where India is today. So India is currently the largest population in the world. Um, they are a modernizing economy um, that, that isn't at the level that maybe China is today but they are projected to be the world's second largest economy by 2075. Um, and so with that, we're seeing massive middle class growth. They're looking at 50 million today. That growth, that number is going to reach 500 million by 2047 due to all projections. So when you have you know, incomes going up, you're going to have people who need food. They have a limited land mass. They cannot grow all the food that they need. And one thing that I, that I really love about working with farmers in the U.S. is that you know, they're, they're passionate about their operations and their families, but they're also passionate about feeding the world. Uh, and frankly, this is a great opportunity for me to be a conduit for these farmers to feed the world. And I, I think there are some interesting things about living in India, uh, but they really pay on comparison to the work that we're getting done and, and what we're able to do for, for not only the farmer, but also the U.S. at large from a political standpoint. And what about the opportunity for growth, especially through ethanol? You know, when we look at uh, you know, our products that we represent, the U.S. Grains Council, you're looking at coarse grains, distiller's grains, corn gluten meal, uh, as well as ethanol. Um, you know, from our perspective, certainly DDGS or distiller's grains is a big one. You know, they are going to need corn. I think um, sorghum or milo fits in there very well as a non-GM product. They do have a GM ban that we're currently working with, with policymakers to, to try to, to get rid of or find some, some ways around. Uh, so you know, I think a lot of the products that we represent could help them with the issues they're facing. And I think outside of those products, you, know, you look at things like soybean meal that they certainly need, soybeans for crushing that they could then use for oil. They eat a lot of fried food, and so having soybean oil is very important to their economy. And then going back to biofuels, um, you know, ethanol is extremely important. They recently uh, set out for an E20 blend mandate. That blend mandate was supposed to take place in 2030. Now it's going to take place in 2025. So they're very ambitious with their, their ethanol initiatives, and, and you know, frankly, they don't have the feedstock to complete that. And so whether it's exporting them ethanol to help them meet their biofuel goals and, and clean up the air around them, is you know, that's something that we're certainly looking at. Or whether it's to export feedstock for them to be able to create the ethanol domestically, you know, we're open to all those solutions and happy to work with regulators over there to get that done. 
But is this a case where other countries will look to India to find out what they're doing and replicate it? So India, uh, during the G20 summit that happened in September in New Delhi, uh, they did come out and started the Global Biofuels Alliance. And there were, there were 17 countries that joined that. But I think uh, you know, the, the major countries that joined that were you know, India taking the leadership role and Brazil and the United States. You know, the United States being the largest ethanol producer in the world, Brazil being number two. And India really only produces today 3% of the world's ethanol. Um, so it's, while it's a small chunk of it, it does tell the other 14 members of the Global Biofuels Alliance, hey, you can do this too. I, I know you've been looking at the U.S. model and the Brazil model, and you may not think that works for you, but we, India, we're telling you that it works for you too, and you should be a part of this. And again, you know, as the largest corn growers in the world, the largest ethanol producers in the world, ethanol adoption is a good thing for our farmers. It is something that is going to, to, to bode well for them in export sales, in corn price. We want to see the adoption take place so that we can be a part of that solution, whether it's through exporting feedstock or through the ethanol itself. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of positive that comes out of this. So I would say the world is certainly watching India when it comes to their ethanol mandates. They are ambitious. They are achievable. And we want to be there to help them achieve those things. It's agriculture today. Ag News Now. Agriculture Today. Stronger domestic dairy demand with a month-over-month lower adjustment in production means slightly tighter supplies. And as a result of all of this, product prices here in the U.S. are up. World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Marjek Kodowski adds within USDA's dairy outlook. Cheese price we raised by 7 cents per pound. Butter price up by 11 cents per pound. Dry products as well. Non-fat dry milk, dry whey. Each raised about a nickel per pound. Translating also into higher milk class prices for February. So both our Class 3 price and our Class 4 price were raised this month. Class 3 was raised by a dollar per hundred weight. Now at $17.10 per hundred weight, Class 4 was raised by 85 cents per hundred weight to $20.20 per hundred weight. And the all-milk price we raised this month by 95 cents per hundred weight. Now forecast for 2024 at $20.95 per hundred weight. I'm Rod Bain reporting in Washington, D.C.